Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-363 of the Run Run Live podcast. Come on over here and let me pet you. No, wait, that's inappropriate. What I mean is today we're talking about dogs and running and books with Lauren Fern Watts, whose book, Giselle's Bucket List, I had the pleasure of reading recently. As is my habit, I called her up and asked for an interview. Great story, starving artist who went viral and got a book deal. As we speak, I am two days out from my 19th Boston Marathon. I am healthy and well-trained, and I've managed to hold my stuff together during the taper. And I'll head into the expo tomorrow to pick up my stuff. It's funny, I've been so busy that I haven't even opened the race material they sent me a couple weeks ago. I haven't even opened it. Imagine that. Someday you may become so jaded with your marathoning that you don't even look at the race packet. Yikes. I used to be like a kid at Christmas when that showed up. <laughs> In section one, I've got a piece on tapering. In section two, I'll talk about algorithms. Yeah, algorithms. What can I say? I have a diverse set of interests. I haven't been doing much except working over the last couple weeks since we last talked. I nailed that last long workout, 22 plus miles, with 90 minutes of of race pace minus 20 seconds tempo right in the middle of it. A real monster. So I hope I didn't I didn't leave my race out there. Since we're on the topic of dogs, my old friend Buddy is doing well. He'll still join me out in the woods for a 20-minute trot if I take it super slow. His back hip, his hips bother him, and he's got the classic collie dysplasia and arthritis. And he's got lumps, lots of lumps, lovely buddy lumps, his lumps, his lumps. He loves to cuddle and hug and have his butt rubbed, and he has this brief moment of activity in the morning, like a two-year-old, where he's up, and wants to go out at 6 a.m. And then he's quite ornery for a couple hours. In and out, in and out. Barking at the woods. Barking at the walkers. Barking at nothing in particular. Sometimes he'll just stand in the front yard and bark at the door. 
until I come out. Like he's saying, what's wrong with you, man? Can't you see it's a beautiful day? Let's go. But he doesn't have to pay the bills. It's spring. The trees are getting ready to explode. I have to get out and clean up the yard, get my garden going soon. I always start the year with such grand aspirations, and then I give up on weeding by August. I went into Boston this week to see a gathering of robotics startups, and there were a couple of industrial robots that were cool. There were robotic bicycles. There was a thing like a Segway, but you sat down on it. There was a mouse-sized robot that scooted around under your furniture to clean the hardwood floors. And there was a gardening robot to kill weeds. And I'm not sure if it could handle the weeds in my garden, but they're heading in the right direction. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Practical taper tips. One of my least favorite things about racing is the taper. This is the period before the race where you cut back on your training and it allows your body to rest and recover in preparation for the race. Even the elites taper for a race. The length of the taper and the depth of the taper are are going to depend on many factors. What's your goal? What has your training been like? What kind of fitness do you have? How old are you? Tapering is one of those skills or learned lessons that we all need to figure out as we progress through the arc of our racing careers. And more than once, I have heard elites and old-timers telling the story of how they left their race at such-and-such an event by racing too hard, too close to their A-race. And when you are racing the marathon distance and you're trying to race an optimal time, you have to do everything right in your training, and that includes the proper taper. You can't race every weekend and expect peak performances. The taper works with your overall training plan. Let's take a classic three-phase training cycle. First phase, you'll focus on building your aerobic base and fitness. Second phase, you'll start to work on strength and speed. Third phase, you'll be focusing on race-specific pace and tuning workouts. This training will be in a series of two- or three-week waves. Each of these waves crests in a new high of volume and intensity. The back-off weeks give your body a chance to recover and build. The build weeks stress your body specifically in ways to build strength and speed. Think of it like compressing a spring. Each time you push hard, the spring is compressed more, storing up potential energy. The taper is the last step where that spring has been compressed as far as it will go. Picture that spring compressed and quivering on the edge of release. The taper lets you recover from that last big push of training. And now you have theoretically maximized the bounce that you will get when you release that spring on race day. Your challenge during the taper is to keep that spring compressed and maximize the energy in that spring so you can get that big bounce on race day. The taper is not a standalone thing. It's part of your overall training plan. If you haven't trained well, a taper isn't going to save you. If you have trained well, well... You'll have to work very hard in the taper to screw that up. I have, rightly or wrongly, experimented with tapers of various durations. 
In terms of impact on your results, I would say in general that the taper is far less important than A, how well you have trained, B, weather on race day, and C, your race execution. Any of those factors will trump a perfect taper. So how long should it be? One of the finer points of tapering is the discussion around how long should the taper be. The traditional consensus is that the taper for a marathon should be at least two weeks. How is that determined? Like most things in distance running, I think it's probably derived from the sum of tribal knowledge more than anything else. Over the years, runners having played with tapers of different lengths and the consensus of the average endurance athlete tends towards two weeks. What does that mean? It means you will do your last, longest, or hardest week ending 14 days before the target race. This gives your body two weeks to recover from that last big push. If I'm just running a race for fun, there's really no need for tapering. If I'm running for fun, I probably haven't trained for that event. I'm coasting in on residual fitness. There's no bounce expectation. If I haven't pushed, there's no taper required. I'll still rest up a bit and stay away from extra long or extra hard stuff, but I won't do anything special. Long time ago, I qualified for Boston with a 3.09 in my second marathon with a one-week taper. I ran two 60-plus mile weeks as my last two weeks of that training cycle with back-to-back 24-mile long runs. And looking back on it with the benefit of experience, I can see that the extra week of volume probably didn't add anything to my race, but I was in such good shape that I could get away with it. I was also a lot younger, and my body could recover in a week from that volume and give me a good bounce. For the majority of the races that I'm planning to actually race, I have used a two-week taper, and this seems to work well. For some races where I might have had a a late-cycle injury, I have done three or even four-week tapers and have had excellent results from that as well. As with everything else, you should figure out what works for you and your goals. So how much? How much do you taper? The prevailing wisdom, again, probably derived from tribal knowledge over the years, is to back off by 50% or more in your taper. For example, my last big build week was in the mid-50 miles range in terms of volume, and I will cut my mileage back into the 20s for the taper. This is actually a great example of working with what you have. This cycle, due to travel, I needed to move some of my big build weeks around and ended up with a two-week taper out of necessity. At my age, I'd typically take a three-week taper if I have time. Since I'm only taking a two-week taper, and I had a big build week going into it, Coach has significantly reduced the volume and intensity of my work in the last two weeks heading into this race. How much work you do in the taper is a function of your training, your age, your fitness, your ability to recover, and the time you have in the schedule. If you look at a 50% reduction, what does that really mean practically? Well, it means if your long run was 20 miles, then you want to drop that to 10-ish on the intervening weekend. If you are used to doing 10 to 12 mile workouts in your build weeks, you'll cut those to four to six mile workouts, 50%. You'll cut the intensity as well. You want to retain some intensity to keep your legs awake. If you were doing speed work at race pace minus 30 seconds, you might do half the distance now and at just around race pace. So not as hard and not as far. 
Fart licks and short pickups are great taper workouts. Run for less than an hour and throw in some short pickups at race pace or a little faster. And these won't stress your legs if you've trained well, but will keep them awake and allow you to burn a little energy. And this is what is referred to as an active taper. You may be doing a lot less work, but you still have to keep moving. You can't just lay around on the couch or your legs will be sluggish on race day. Calories, calories, calories. One of my biggest challenges during the taper is nutrition. My body's natural set point is chubby. Without the constraints of clean eating and exercise, my body would want to stabilize at around 30 pounds heavier than I live and race at. And when I'm deep in a training cycle, resisting my body's migration towards chubby is a lot easier. I'm burning more calories. I've got less time to eat. I'm more focused on my fitness. Nutrition is very much a part of the training. You can't get the most out of a training cycle without working on your nutrition. When it comes to the taper, this becomes a challenge. And part of it is simple math. Let's say I was running 50 miles a week in round numbers, burning 100 calories a mile. That's 5,000 calories. At my current fitness level, that's two full days worth of calories for me. Over, over a two-week taper, that's four days of calories I have to avoid. Since my body is always looking for an opportunity to return to its chubby set point, if I just eat normal, I'll put on five to ten pounds in my taper. I don't have to do anything crazy. I just have to eat normal, and I'll carry a five-pound weight with me into the race. And I can tell you that five pounds can make a giant difference in a race when you're shooting for a goal time. Then there's the mental part of the taper where you're stressed out. You may be a little bored from not having enough workouts. A nice big meal to fill the tummy and relieve some stress is hard to resist. But if you want to race fast, resist you must. When I was younger, it wouldn't make that big a difference. Now, I need to proactively go on a reduced calorie diet during my taper weeks. It sucks, but at the end of the taper, it pays off. There is no such thing as carbo-loading. Stay away from the pasta, the bread, the beer. All that is going to do is make you fat. (laughs) If you haven't trained, no amount or combination of food in the taper can save you. If you have trained, just focus on going into the race lean. The skinniest person has thousands of calories of fat available for the race. If you have trained well, your body knows how to access that fat in the race. I know it's disappointing, but the best strategy is to eat lean and clean during your taper and go into your race lean and mean as a result. So what else? You can do some stretching and some flexibility. Tapers are great for working on your flexibility. Coming out of those big training weeks, you'll probably have some tightness and soreness. Take a few minutes every day during your taper and do some self-massage, some stretching. Work the calves, the hamstrings, the quads. Don't do anything violent or invasive. You don't want to stress or bruise. Just stretch and loosen. Work on your ability to touch your toes, open up your hips. It's okay to get a massage early in the taper. I wouldn't risk getting a massage close to the race. An over-enthusiastic massage therapist could tweak something. Just do it yourself. Rub those muscles. It's also okay to do some push-ups, some crunches, 
or whatever your favorite core exercises are. Just don't do a lot. You're maintaining fitness, not stressing anything out. Yoga is fine, but don't do anything that may tweak your back or anything you haven't done before. Any stretching, yoga, or core you do should be therapeutic. Tapering. As we taper into the end of this article, relax. The taper isn't that important. At this point, so close to the race, you have to do something astoundingly stupid to influence your race. Relax. For the most part, the outcome is out of your control. Focus on the process and the things that are in your control. Keep your volume and intensity low. Let the energy percolate in that spring for that big bounce. Watch your nutrition. Keep yourself race fit and lean. Relax. Let the race come to you. And now for today's featured interview. Without the chit-chat, anyhow. So so again, give me the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking. Yeah, of course. My name is Lauren Fern Watt, and I am the author of a book that just came out um, this last month with Simon & Schuster called Giselle's Bucket List, My Life with a Very Large Dog. And the book is about, obviously, my life with my large dog, Giselle. She was an English Mastiff, a brindle, and she was my very best friend. She was like 160 pounds and had this huge head that was... I say in the book, the size of Darth Vader's. And she was my best friend. We grew up uh, from the ages of 19 to 25. I had her and we went through a lot together. First jobs, finishing college, relationships, and a move from Tennessee to New York City. And she was also my running companion, which is why we're talking today. So I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. You know, it's funny because... Uh, Simon and Schuster sent me a copy of the book, and I don't know why, but I guess because <laughs> I, I might have some social media cachet, so I I picked it up, and it's not really a genre I would reach for, you know. Uh, uh -huh. Certainly, millennial female coming of age is not really well aligned with me in my life. Although I have a couple of them living with me in my house, so I can learn something from that. <laughs> but I was attracted by the running and the dog part. Because I, I run a lot, and I also have a dog who, uh, he may speak up at some point during this interview, but he is in sort of the long shadow of his life at this point. He's 13 years old. And so when I get to the, you know, spoiler alert, when I get to the end of the book, when you're losing Giselle, it really, really was heart-wrenching for me, you know, thinking ahead at some point over the next two or three years where I'm going to lose my friend as well, right? So, yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's only only dog owners know this stuff, I think. Right. I mean, it's such a hard thing to go through, but it's something that everyone who has a dog can relate to because they unfortunately don't outlive us. So it's just, yeah, it's so hard to lose one, and it's devastating because they're your best friend and your family. And, yeah, I'm glad you could connect with that as well. That's kind of what I hoped I hope the book would appeal to more people because I think so many know what it's like to love and lose a dog. Yeah, it's a special bond. You know, when I look at what you're doing, and we talked a little bit earlier about it going viral when you were sort of blogging this, and that led to the book, uh, I can see that because in my own blogs, I think the second most popular one is one I wrote about Buddy, right? 
and <laughs> yeah. and that got picked up by a, a compilation as well, a compilation of running stories as well. So that you you can see that resonance, right? It's a really strong emotional connection that people have with their with their best friends, so to speak. Yeah, something I've learned throughout this whole process is that dogs are such a global unifier. It's like, you know, people are diverse and we're all different, but we all, you know, so many of us know what it is like to love a dog and can connect with that. Now, um, this, now this Mastiff that you had, I, you know, I can picture the breed, um, mm-hmm. but what what famous dogs are are like this? You were saying the the one from the Sandlot movie. Oh, that's, yeah. that's yeah, the yeah. Mastiff. Yeah. Yes, the beast from the Sandlot, yeah. uh, which actually in that movie they're you know they're terrified it terrified of it. They think it's gonna you know it eats children, but it's very funny because mastiffs have the nickname gentle giants, so they are huge and they could look really intimidating, but they are so calm and pretty laid back and very you know so many of them are just very very sweet and sensitive that's how i always felt about giselle that she was a really sensitive soul so funny that one was known as such a beast yeah i have a friend who has one uh and it's like you said it's just a big dopey dog and you know yeah drooling all over everything yeah yeah (laughs) yeah what kind of dog did you say you had so buddy's a border collie okay so he's a, a smaller dog, you know, maybe 50 pounds, um, really good runner in his prime. Uh, we've done a lot of meaningful miles together out in the woods, so he really enjoys getting out. So it's a, it's tough now that he can't go with me as much, right? Yeah, yeah. And how old did you say he was? He's 13. 13, 13. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so tough. That was one of the hardest things about um, when Giselle started limping. She used to be my running buddy, and she obviously wasn't the fastest dog, and she didn't go really far because the breed is, you know, bigger and not meant to run long distances, but it was really, really hard when I couldn't bring her with me anymore. It was just, it's so devastating. Yeah, the hardest part is when you're trying to leave the house and they're looking at you, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what, even when Giselle was limping, I was like, if I brought her with me, I think she would still figure out a way to run. Yeah. Even though the vet says she's not allowed to run because they are just so determined. So, yeah, yeah it's just devastating. They look at you with these eyes like, please bring me too. And you're yeah. like, yeah. I can't. Um, yeah. yeah, it's tough. It's tough. So yeah. talk about the uh, the bucket list, which was the blog that got this all started. Yeah, yeah. So I, a couple years ago, Giselle passed away on January 7th, 2015. And after it happened, I was having a really hard time with it, and I was really upset. And I had made her this bucket list that, in my head, was just a pretty simple list of things that we did together and adventures we had and things I wanted to do with her after I found out she wasn't going to be around much longer. So I knew an editor at Yahoo Travel through my job, and I I was talking to her about my dog and telling her about this bucket list I made for my dog, and she said, oh, you should should write that for us. You could write that. So I did, and the story went up, and it was a slideshow with pictures of things that we did, and when it first went up, I was honestly thinking, you know, no one is going to read this. Is this embarrassing? But it turned out that within a few hours, that story... um, 
it started to go viral everywhere and BuzzFeed picked it up and it got over a million hits on BuzzFeed and I started <laughs> receiving. Yeah, it was such a crazy time. Um, my inbox was flooded with emails from people around the world who uh, connected with what it was like to love and lose a dog. And they just wrote me telling me all about their dogs. And it was just really, really cool and really incredible um, that so many others knew how I felt and what I had gone through losing my own dog. Yeah, it was really incredible. And after that happened, um, all these people kept writing me and I started thinking more about my story and how, you know, I had the Giselle from the ages of 19 to 25. And that was a time when I was going through a lot and she did more for me than the bucket list. So I was kind of thinking that I had a bigger story to tell. And that's what led to me writing my book that came out this past month. Yeah. And, and I think, but you did a great job of keeping Giselle as the through line, as the anchor, because I think you could have got lost in the weeds going down any of those other paths, you know, the coming of age story, the relationship stories, certainly your mother's uh, addiction. You know, you could have gone too far and too deep in those, but the the Giselle story was sort of the anchor for all of that, right? And I think you, yeah. did, you did a good job staying on narrative, and the narrative really stuck together for me anyhow. Thank you. It means a lot to hear you say that. That was one of the toughest things, one of the toughest challenges with the book is um, finding the right balance between talking about the other issues people face growing up, but also making sure it was a dog book. So yeah, the thing as I was, you know, it was important to keep it a dog story, but then also I hope to add in things to give it a little bit more depth and to try and hit, you know, the difficulties that others face growing up. Like my, you know, addiction is such a huge problem uh, all over the world. So yeah. it was important to me to write about that. And I couldn't write an honest story without including that, but it was always important that Giselle remained as the backbone of the story. Right. So I, I think you did a good job with that. Um, Thank you. <laughs> the yeah it's uh, so I'll tell you a story I when I was finished on I told you I read this book on a plane ride from Boston to uh, Silicon Valley and it was compelling enough that I re read right through it and I left it or I I had it with me in Silicon Valley and the guy I was working with his daughter came to dinner with us uh -huh. one night and she was about you know in that 1920ish age group and her big dream was to move to New York City. And I said, <laughs> I said, I have a book for you. <laughs> and I gave it to her. So oh, that's amazing. Thank you for so doing that. So that may be more of your target audience than the, yeah. old, the old guy. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I really hoped that this book, that a lot of different people would find something in this book that they could connect with. For you, it was the dog and the running. Um, I think for girls my age, it's a lot of the, you know, trying to figure out your life and where do I move and wanting to live, move to New York City and, you know, first relationships. But yeah, it, it means a lot to me that you read it and liked it and then passed it along to someone else thinking she would read it and like it. Because um, yeah, I was hoping it would be a book that a lot of different people could connect with and not just one. So I got a question for you. What is the draw of New York City to young people? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, for me, I think it was the dream that it's the city that offers everything, that 
if you don't know really who you are, what you want to do, this city has everything. And if you work really hard there, you'll be able to figure it out. I, of course, always had a dream. My dream was to always be a writer, but I didn't move to New York City thinking that would happen to me right away. And I was willing to work any job that would let me make my rent and stay. And But yeah, I think it's just the idea of the opportunity and all, you know, the diversity that was really appealing to me as well. The idea that if you could try and make it in that city, you could make it anywhere and just how competitive it is and how much the energy there and, yeah, you know, 23 and didn't know what I was doing and was determined to figure it out. And I thought New York City would be the place to do it. Of course, it's extremely challenging. I, I wouldn't trade those days of trying to figure out what I was doing in New York City for anything. It was such an awesome learning experience and it wasn't always easy, but I learned so much moving there. Yeah, so just the intensity of it is, you know, that combination of challenge and opportunity is really good for someone who's trying to figure out what they're doing and and formulating their life. It's it's very shaping, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah, that's how I felt. And just, you know, just trying to be determined to make something work there because um, there is so much opportunity there, but it definitely takes a lot of work yeah. to yeah. go after it and navigate it and yeah because it'll chew people up as well oh the, completely <laughs> yeah the funny part from your book is that you're living in new york city you know in a tiny apartment with this giant dog yeah <laughs> and it's and it's so you know i i can't imagine how how challenging that must have been to get out you know make sure you get out every day with the giant dog and and get them everything they need right yeah, it was nice because Giselle was always the reminder to get to the park and, you know, make sure we're getting in nature every day and getting up to Central Park and going for walks. Um, I think that's an amazing thing about dogs is they make sure you get outside. Um, it's interesting, though, because Mastiffs are so laid back. I have a 30-pound dog now, and I think it would be she's a Basenji mix, and she's has a lot of energy, and she has to run, and I think it would be more difficult to move to Manhattan and do what I did with Giselle with this 30-pound dog. Right. Because <laughs> like Giselle was really so laid back, and she slept in my bed, and she was pretty content hanging out on the couch. And then when we got to go to the park, she was happy. Um, yeah. So yeah. some people say that giant calm breeds could be ideal apartment dogs. But it was – I mean, it was a crazy time. In the neighborhood we lived in our first year, I still – I think back on those days walking around with her and all the people yelling crazy things at us, like, that's not a dog, that's a bear. And, you know, just t- taking nonstop photos of Giselle because you don't see dogs that size in Manhattan. So it was, it was so interesting. At the time, I was like, it felt like it was what I was supposed to be doing. But now I look back on it and I'm like, I can't believe we did that. What an adventure. And <laughs> But in a way, it gave you a way to access the community and access people, right? Because it was such a conversation starter. And of course, yeah, the people wandering around the streets of New York City don't have any, you know, any resistance to talking to you anyhow. So, so I'm sure you you met some interesting folks just walking around with the giant dog. Yeah, I absolutely did. So many interesting characters around our neighborhood that I never would have gotten to speak to if it weren't for Giselle. Um, We always joked that she was a good boy test, too, because if boys were in their fancy business suits and wanted nothing to do with the big dog, we were like, no, they're not. That's not the kind of boy we want. 
But yeah, it was, I mean, it was crazy to live with a dog that big, but. Dogs are very sensitive to, um, to threats like that, right? So they'll know if somebody's up to no good when they're around you because their, their job number one is to take care of you, right? Yeah. 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 And she was always such a nice protector. I had her, I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and my senior year I lived in a house and I remember always being so happy that I had her because I felt really, really safe because no one's going to mess with you with a dog that size. (laughs) Did she ever, uh, you know, get to the point where she was growling at somebody or she took offense to somebody? That no, was, I mean, uh, in your face, no? I, yeah, I was pretty lucky where I didn't ever have anything really horrible happen. So she was, you, you know, she was a friendly dog. She went through a phase where she was actually a little bit shy of people, but I know she would have done something if someone was threatening towards us, but. Yeah, yeah. So um, I really like the, uh, spoiler alert again, the, the end of the book where you sort of run off into the sunset on the beach. Um, Because I have done that so many times in my life, just out of some bad situation, just put on my shoes and got lost, right? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Sometimes I think when everything else feels like it's falling apart, sometimes running feels like the most natural thing for me to do. It it feels like the only thing I can do in that moment. And it's like, I don't want to lay down and cry. I don't want to you know, lock myself in my room. So maybe I'll just go outside and I'll run and I'll just put one foot in front of the other and I'll just try and think about that and I'll have hope that I'll eventually be okay. And I think that's what running does for me a lot of times is it gives me hope and it helps me, you know, release any bad energies I have. And yeah, running has been a really healing thing in my life. And that day when Giselle passed away, and I didn't know what else to do. It was kind of the thing that came naturally and felt like the thing that I had to do. And I didn't run very far that day. It was really, really cold. But I did run. And, yeah, I got to the end of the beach, and there were these huge paw prints in the sand. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> I always feel like my dog is with me <laughs> when I'm yeah. running. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's a great way to clear your head and to, again, be an anchor in your life. And that's, you know, that's, that's a good message for people as well. Have you kept it up? Are you doing anything interesting? Have you gotten around to the New York City Marathon yet? You should do yeah. that. I'm Yeah, I'm actually really excited. I So I'm an ambassador for an organization called Shatterproof now, and they work to end the devastation that addiction causes families. Okay. And I'm on their team to run the New York City Marathon this year. So this is, so, your, first, this is your first one? I no, I I got to do it two years ago as well, so it'll be my second New York Marathon. But it's an incredible race, and I'm so excited. Yeah, it's it's an amazing machine to churn that many people through the streets of New York City. In yeah, uh, yeah it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm so excited, and I'm really it's an it's an incredible organization that I get to run with, and they're really passionate about helping others who are struggling with addiction and breaking the shame and stigma that's associated with it. So I feel honored to run on their team and we're raising money to help other people who are struggling with it. And I'm super excited. I'm about, I'm going to go for a longer run today, I think, because I need to get back on a training routine. But Yeah. Well, you can go out along uh, Long Beach there and uh, they got a path right along the ocean front. You can oh, run yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard cement, but it's uh, it's peaceful. You see a lot of interesting individuals. 
Yeah. What about you? Do you have any marathons? Uh, yeah, I get this Boston Marathon coming up in three weeks, so I'm in my high stress, oh, high training. Three weeks. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of stressful this week. It's my last big week, and I got a lot going on in my life, and so I have to squeeze in these two-hour runs. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it is a time-consuming hobby, but it's nice. Yeah, and I can't take my buddy with me because he's, uh, he's too old and lame to be doing that. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm sorry. This must have been a great ride for you so far. I mean, you kind of have met your dreams at such a young age. You're going to have to be careful not to, uh, you know, to keep this going, to find a way to, to, to yeah. ride away about. <laughs> yeah, I feel really, really grateful that I was able to tell this story, and I'm still pinching myself that this happened to me in this fashion, and I got to write a book, and I learned so much writing my first book, and yeah, I, I mean, it's my dream to keep writing, so hopefully starting a second project soon. <laughs> Have you managed to keep enough time for yourself to be able to be creative in all this traveling around and doing book stuff? Yeah, I have. I'm always keeping journals and writing. I mean, writing's always been my way to sort things out in my head. So whether I want to or not, I'm always writing things on planes and you know at airports or whenever I have a second. I've been trying. So I just got back from London two days ago. Awesome. Um, I was doing book tour stuff out there. So awesome. it has been... A crazy month, but I'm just really excited and really grateful and grateful that, you know, people like you enjoyed the book. And yeah, it's, it sounds like you're keeping a good attitude. You don't sound too burnt out. So, so good for you. <laughs> no, it's so exciting. So <laughs> yeah, because I know that can be tough with that international travel and the, and the jet lag and everything, trying to stay on, on good habits, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was like I was really lucky because it's something I love to do and it's a story that's important to me. So I, I feel like it's having energy and excitement about it isn't the hard part. Like that's it's so exciting for me. So that's great. So yeah. what, if you had to summarize as we move you towards the exit here, what uh, what have you learned from all this? What is, what are your top three takeaways? Oh, gosh. Um Definitely my dog taught me a lot about unconditional love. Even after she passed away and I, like I said, received all those emails from people all over the world writing about their dogs. The most interesting thing was that all the emails, most of them were the same. Like, you know, this guy in Egypt is writing me about his dog and he's like, oh, my dog was there for me through financial struggles and I was trying to figure out my job, but my dog loved me no matter what. And, you know, I've got other people writing the same things, that their dogs always loved them no matter what. And I know my dog, you know, loved me unconditionally and was always there when I got home and didn't always feel great about myself. And I think that love is, like, more powerful than people realize. So definitely love, still trying to live in the moment. That's That was kind of why I made the dog bucket list. And... Yeah, I think it's important to just try and, you know, live every day and make sure you get outside for a run or, you know, watch the sunset or, you know, not get too caught up in work and life that it slips right away. I think that's another thing I'm really, really trying to do. Yeah, so, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. So, so what kind of what's the demographic of people who are showing up at your your book events? Um, all types of people, really, which is 
which is an honor to me. I had someone write me the other day saying that they'd never owned a dog, but <laughs> but came across the book and read it and really liked it. And I was honored that someone, you know, because you hope that it appeals to a wide range of people, which is really nice. <laughs> so. All right. You got any uh, any links or anything you want to share with folks? Uh, yeah. I mean, you can order the book on Amazon is where it's available. Um, Barnes & Noble. Or you can go to my website, laurenfernwatt.com. It's available there. It's also available on audio, and it's read by yours truly. Oh, yeah? Good <laughs> yeah. for you. Good so for you. you can listen to me more if you can stand it. And... Um, yeah, I'm also, I'm, I, again, I'm running the New York City Marathon and I'm raising money for Shatterproof and I will be doing that for the, you know, until the race comes in November. So any support there would mean so much to me. They're an awesome organization and you can go to shatterproof.org and learn more about the work that they're doing. Yeah. You can send me all the links and I'll put them in the notes. Okay, cool. And- and I'll tell you my, uh, my I ran New York City Marathon in 2014 um, <laughs> when when I was doing my marathon a month thing to recover from the the Boston Marathon um, in 2013 when we had some issues up there. So yeah. um, I ran New York and I was on the cover of the Wall Street Journal on Monday. Oh no way! Yeah. So cool. Yeah, so I, I jumped up on the divider on the Narrows Bridge at the start to take a picture of the city. Uh-huh. And there's a picture of me, and it says, runner takes a selfie on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. I'll have to look that up. That is so cool. Yeah. So, long time ago. A couple years ago. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. All right, my friend, I'll let you go. Thanks for your time. Cool. Enjoy the West Coast. Get Thank some sun. You. Make sure you get outside. Good luck with your um, with Boston. That's incredible. Yeah, Congrats. Yeah, yeah I got to go race. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Talk All to you right. later. Yeah, okay. bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Algorithms to live by. The Computer Science of Human Decisions, a book review. So I read this book on my Kindle over the last few weeks and found it thought-provoking, educational, and entertaining. These guys did a great job writing about the interesting bits of algorithms and how they are applied to our real world. And they did it without talking down to us and without using formulas. It's an excellent and interesting book that builds a nice narrative and a nice bridge between potentially sticky abstract science topics and the real world. So good job. One of the first things they look into is the question of how long to look at alternatives before settling on one. Guess what? The answer is 37%. It's always 37%. (laughs) After you have looked at 37% of the viable candidates, you should go ahead and stop. And they explain why. It's just this sort of intractable problem that they hold the lens of science up to and explain in an easy way. Whether you're looking for a bride or hiring a secretary, the answer is 37%. Next, they explore the explore-exploit algorithms. And this is where you try to figure out whether to eat at the restaurant you know and love versus try a new one. How do you balance the known versus the unknown potential? What's the value of exploration itself? 
In a particularly useful chapter, they discuss sorting algorithms. What's the fastest way to sort a giant pile of stuff? The answer, split it into lots of little piles. Sort those little piles and then merge them together. This is known as the merge sort. That will come in handy with your sock drawer next time you do the laundry. And how about caching algorithms? You can't keep everything in your head or in your purse at one time. So you have to stick some of it into cache memory. And what should you put in this handy short-term cache memory? Well, it turns out the best thing to put close at hand in cache is what you have most recently used. So now, when you clean your house, you can just use the LIFO method to know what to leave on the counter and what to bury in the back of the closet. Last in, first out. They talk about the concept of overfitting the algorithm, and this is when you use too much information and actually get a worse answer. And sometimes, most of the time, drawing conclusions from fewer data points actually gives you a better answer. And I see this happening all around me in business. Everyone wants to have all the data so they can make sure they get the best answer. They are just spending money and time to get a worse answer. The last chapter on game theory is quite fascinating. They trot out the prisoner's dilemma because what good pop science book can't cite the prisoner's dilemma? So here we go. You have two prisoners, each being grilled in two separate interrogation rooms. If both of them hold out, there isn't enough evidence, and they will both go free and get to split the $10 million they stole. If one of them cooperates, that one goes free and gets all the $10 million. If they both cave... They both go to jail. So what's the optimal answer? Well, it turns out, given those rules, you should always rat out your friend. It's the lowest risk, highest payoff choice. Unless, of course, ratting them out is going to get you killed by a mafia don, then you probably shouldn't. The tricky thing with most game theory is it requires you to guess what the other person is thinking. And when you start doing that, you end up in an endless loop called recursion. Is he bluffing? Or is he pretending to bluff because he thinks I'm pretending to bluff? It goes on forever. These are examples of truly intractable problems where the game is set up in such a way that the best option is not what we would want, but it's the best option. The only alternative to this trap is to change the rules of the game, quite applicable to many of the intractable social and political problems we have now. For instance, there's the common green problem which says that, hey, if everyone picks up after themselves, there will be no litter. But me, as an individual, I can save time and expense by just throwing my trash out the car window. Somebody else will pick it up, right? But if we all do that, we all suffocate in a big pile of trash. Only the rules of the game, in this case the social norm, keep us in check. So I'll leave you with this thought about following the herd versus making your own way. Quote, And if you are the kind of person who always does what you think is right, no matter how crazy others think it is, take heart. The bad news is that you will be wrong more often than the herd followers. The good news is that sticking to your convictions creates a positive externality, letting people make accurate inferences from your behavior. There may come a time when you will save the entire herd, from disaster. Enjoy your algorithms. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. 
All right, my friends, you have trotted on your four feet with your tail between your legs to the end of episode 4-363 of the Run Run Live podcast. Don't forget to sniff the flowers and mark the trees. You won't hear from me again until after Boston. It looks like the weather is going to be decent. We'll see what I can come up with. I don't lose too much sleep over it anymore. But I have been sporting a rather attractive cold sore for the last two weeks, so there is some sort of stress I'm sublimating. We'll be nice to have the pressure off and get back to some casual, enjoyful running. Enjoyful. I just made up a word. Enjoyful. So I've watched a few movies over the last month or so. Some odd ones. As I'm getting older, I'm more interested in odd movies. For instance, I watched Swiss Army Man with Harry Potter playing a farting magical corpse. Quite a fun and interesting movie. And don't worry, it all makes sense at the end. I also watched half of The Lobster, which is a bizarre deadpan UK art project that is just on the edge of being hilariously funny, but never quite goes there. Quite strange movie. On the serious side, I watched half of Manchester by the Sea with Casey Affleck, I thought the portrayal of Massachusetts townie culture was spot on. They got all the accents right, but it's a bit depressing. Uh, My wife and I watched Hacksaw Ridge. Very good movie. Very long movie. Typical Mel Gibson fare. He wasn't in it, but he made the movie. Similar to When We Were Soldiers in tone and morality. So if you like that one, you'll like this one. And my daughter and I watched Moana, the animated Disney movie about Polynesian adventure and demigods. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays the comic relief demigod Maui, and he does a great job. Classic Disney. They will never run out of cultures to exploit, evidently. Finally, I watched Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and I really enjoyed it. I didn't, I'm not a big Harry Potter person, but it was very well acted and the visuals were awesome. See, I do other things besides training. You still have time? To contribute to my Team Hoyt Fund for this year's adventure, this year's race, I just dropped a video with all the links to my social media, cold sore and all, (laughs) and you can find it in the show notes or on my site, blah, blah, blah. I went by Starbucks today on the way into my office. There's one in the next town over that I used to be a regular at, but they built one in my town so I don't go over one town much more. But there's a lady there who remembers me and my order. And she hasn't seen me in more, oh, probably three or four months. And she hasn't seen me more than two times in the last year. And she remembers me and my order. Calls me by name. That's great. She makes me feel great. Go ahead and remember someone this week. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought... That he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry Left my home in Norfolk, Virginia, California on my mind